This is the Vorpal Network. Welcome to Dice Monkey Radio. This is episode four, Face Front True Believers. It's time to talk to Cam Banks from the Marvel RPG. How's it going, Cam? It's going fantastic. Good. So you are um, the lead designer for the Marvel Heroic role-playing game? That's it, yeah. And you've done, you've done a few other role-playing games for Margaret Weiss Productions, correct? Yeah, in fact, most of my role-playing game design work has been with Margaret Weiss Productions. Um, before that, they were Sovereign Press and had D20 licenses for Dragonlance, which is where I got started. But since then, um, it's been all Margaret Weiss Productions all the time. Excellent. I've played um, the Battlestar Galactica and Serenity role-playing games, um, mm-hmm. and uh, Marvel's also using the same Cortex system. Well, it's not quite right to call it the same system, because although it's inspired by we've changed the system uh, lately for our games to make them suit the, the genre and the license better. Okay. So you might see some things that are familiar, but yeah, I mean, you could, you could start right from scratch and not have to worry about playing other games before. Excellent. Okay, well, let's go right into the news. Okay, first up, um, briefly, I'd like to talk about D&D Next. We did the uh, Dice Monkey bonus episode where I had everybody talking about the speculation when it was first announced. But uh, over the weekend, there's been the DDXP, and there's been a lot more stuff revealed. I I saw you were commenting quite a bit about it, Cam. Yeah, I'm kind of an observer, really. I don't have any stake in it at this point, which is okay. kind of cool. So, mm-hmm. it, um, I, since I'm not working on it or, or necessarily even um, transitioning away from fourth edition campaigns myself, it, it puts me in a position of looking at it as someone who's done D and D work before, but you know doesn't have any sort of uh, uh, irons in the fire. Mm-hmm. How's how's it look to you from what you've seen from everybody's comments and stuff? Well, I think overall very positive. I, mean, I think they have the right idea. They know what they're trying to do. Um, it's one of those things when you're putting out new additions or revisions or anything else, you want to try and listen to what your customers wanted. And if they've missed the bar somewhere, they'll go back and try and fix it. And I think they've got a good team. They've got great vision. So it should be great. Yeah, I'm really looking forward to it. I've... Um... I'm one of the playtesters for the um, Family and Friends playtest, and um, I've gotten to play in a couple of games so far, and it's it's been really enjoyable. Um, I it there's this weird balance of not quite being sure of what pe- what's actually been revealed and what hasn't, so I'm not sure what I'm <laughs> able to talk about yeah, yeah. from what I've messed around with. So um, I've been personally avoiding getting too much into the the discussion right. to avoid uh, violating the NDA or anything. So. Yeah, I've been friends with Jim Butcher for many years, and he and his uh, wife and their gaming group have been involved in doing some of the same kind of thing you're talking about. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, people have asked you know, his wife, Shannon, whether she can give her impressions or they've asked him. And the simple answer is not really, you know, yeah. because it's um, it's one thing to give your feeling about something, but quite another to suddenly slip something out that you realize may not have been announced. Exactly. Um, and if unless you like paying attention all the time to everything that the people at Watsi say, you might not know what they have said, and so you'll kind of be hedging a bit on something that's public knowledge, which makes you sound stupid. Yeah, and luckily, um, my gaming group here in in a in the Chicago area 
um, they've got the NDAs and we've been we've been playing. So I'm I've, I do have a group of people that I'm able to discuss things with, um, mm-hmm. but it's just it's tricky because I've never been under an NDA, an NDA before, and it's a it's a slippery slope. It is, yeah. I've I've been um, the one who hands out NDAs before quite a few times, and even recently with Marvel, we've had a lot of uh, game groups that have been under the under the NDA we've set up for it. Um, and I know a lot of them want to go on forums and they want to talk about how much fun they had and, and what they what they have that they know. Because I, I think this is also the case for D and D Next. Lots of folks like you who've seen a little bit of it or more of it see people commenting who have no idea and they just they'll, they'll speculate they'll say this is going to be bad because of this reason mm-hmm. and you just want it you want to say no no it's it's they fixed that and you say well i can't really say that exactly yeah there's a lot of there's a lot of, sp- of that speculation of mm-hmm. well i don't like it because of this and and you want to uh, uh you know what i'm just going to go ahead and let that go and wait until <laughs> you know whenever when it, once everybody else has gotten yeah. um the play test that once it goes public then right. i'm then i'll be more than happy to talk about everything but it's it's tricky so let's go ahead and uh let's go ahead and talk about the marvel role-playing game and what releases you've got the the game itself comes out um at the end of february correct so this is the one of the things i have to clear up with people um uh, unlike our previous games we don't have a core book for marvel heroic role-playing we've got this idea of the actual rule book content itself, which we've called the operations manual, that is going to be in several books. The same kind of rules you have in, in each of these books, we're going to reprint them. Um, and the reason we're doing that is because we're publishing our uh, whole uh, schedule of books uh, under this idea of um, event tie-ins. Um, you know, Marvel has this, uh, it's not just Marvel, a lot of comic companies too, is too. They have these big crossover events that are are really huge and involve lots of characters, mm-hmm. anything from the Civil War to um, even with, with DC, they did recently the uh, Flashpoint leading up to their own reboot, 52 um, comics thing. And so these these are great because they involve a whole uh, cross-section of the the universe that they're set in, which makes them ideal for, for attaching game stuff to. And this was a different attack... Uh, style for it for them than maybe we've done before. We're normally we're used to making a core book and we'll say, here's the, the core rule book, you can buy this, it's got the rules and the setting and everything else. And we'll just publish supplements that kind of go into more areas. And that I think is the model most companies do. It's just the easiest one to do and it, it, it's the idea of, you know, I have one book I can buy and everything else is separate. For Marvel, we wanted to do these uh, big events but we didn't want it to be one where you had to buy each event for any reason. Or if you didn't necessarily want to, you could buy the one uh, event book, like the big campaign book, and have a version that comes with the rules as well. And that's kind of what our premium event books are about. So there'll be a premium event book for each of the three big events this year. That's the Civil War, Annihilation, which is a very big cosmic storyline, and Age of Apocalypse, which is kind of a retro flashback to 1995. And so those three event books, the premium edition will come with the operations manual actually included in the book. Mm-hmm. Okay. And so this is a this was an, uh, a model we sort of set up, and Marvel really likes it. They want to try and tie their books into our books, or vice versa, actually. So that if you have your copy of the Civil War um, Marvel Heroic Role-Playing book on the shelf, it should kind of match the same style as your um, hardcover collections from Civil War, if you already had those mm-hmm. uh, bound editions. And 
you know, so that was great. But I, I wanted to try and have an introductory or um, sort of get people playing it before they invest heavily in a big event book um, kind of thing. And so to kick things off, that's what the basic game is. The basic game is the same operations manual, so it isn't a trimmed-down version of the rules or anything. It isn't like a, uh, a cutback version, but it does have that and a mini-event to get you started. So, um, And it's only about $20, so it's a very inexpensive kind of product. If you bought an event book with the premium edition and had the, the rules attached as the, the person who runs the game, which we call the Watcher, if the Watcher buys that, then the players should all be able to buy the basic game because it has all the rules in it too. Yeah. That's not as expensive as buying this big hardcover thing. So the basic game is the book that comes out next month and that'll kick off the uh, the huge um, unfolding release schedule we have planned for this year. And the adventure you have in there is the breakout that was the That's right. of the new Avengers? Mm-hmm. Um, I like it a lot. I mean, I, I really got into Marvel Comics again once Bendis came on board and he's He's kind of controversial for some people who don't really think he's playing well with the universe and others think he's the, the greatest thing in the, in the universe. You know, he's one of the, um, I call them the Marvel architects because they're the writers who have spearheaded Marvel's big resurgence back into the to the comic book market. And I think New Avengers was where it started for me. I, I came back into it thinking, you know, well, what what's this going to be? I mean, you, you can't put Spider-Man and Wolverine in the Avengers. That's crazy. <laughs> but it really it really worked. I mean, he did a great job with it. So the fact that you've got that idea of anyone could become an Avenger, we'll, we'll you know, take this hero from here and this obscure character from here and just play this opening act is really what drove me to include Breakout in this book as the, the first way you experience playing Marvel. Yeah, it makes sense with the... Avengers sort of being from all over the place because initially the Avengers were designed because there was too many good heroes that the kids weren't able to collect all the comic books for and so that's why Stanley threw the Avengers together was well here's you can get all the characters in one place right you had to buy Tales to, uh, to Astonish and Journey into Mystery and all the other ones too yeah um, and they didn't they didn't stop those they kept going with them but it was a mm-hmm. fun thing um, I love team books. One of my favorite things is to follow team books of all kinds. And right now there's no shortage of those. And, you know, it's a role-playing game. You want people to have the whole, you know, table of characters um, available to them. And so the best approach I thought was to try and give them options. There's 23 heroes in the basic game, hero data files. And although you can make your own character, the idea that we... Obviously, as our primary approach to doing this is to provide you with characters you can take on and make them your own. Um, so you can put together your own dream team of Avengers at the beginning and see how that works out. Excellent. So you've got the core book, and then you've got Civil War coming right afterwards, which will deal with the basically superhero on superhero battles yeah. that took place during the that whole thing. Yeah. Um, following that in July... Well, it's yeah. Um, yeah the, we, we had some dates that we initially put out there to month by month, and we, we soon realized that some of those weren't going to quite line up. Okay. So we, we, what we're saying now is second quarter is all about civil war. Third quarter is annihilation, and fourth quarter this year is um, age of apocalypse. So falling in there is roughly when we're going to be uh, putting these books out. Okay. Um, so the annihilation is all about the cosmic heroes, the guardians of the galaxy, that type of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, so we'll um, 
the uh, Fantastic Four villain Annihilus as the lead bad guy in this series, and it was very popular um, miniseries that kind of drew in a lot of these cosmic characters that no one had seen for a while. And so you've got Quasar and Nova and um, Thanos comes in near the end of it and so on. And these, these are really interesting characters, but the the overriding story in the past had always been something like, you know, the Infinity Gauntlet door, um, uh, maybe the Kree scroll war, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. This was a whole different kind of approach. There was this sort of almost um, unstoppable yeah, force from the negative zone that was invading our reality and only the cosmic characters could do anything about it. So I, I you know, I thought it was a really good idea to, to to grab onto that as opposed to, you know, just say the Infinity Gauntlet, which was a, a different kind of uh, storyline. Mm-hmm. And then you have the Age of Apocalypse, which is coming mm-hmm. out, and that's all about the um, the alternate reality where Apocalypse basically takes over the world. Yeah, um, uh, Charles Xavier dies and leaves the future of the mutants to Magneto, and in doing so, um, is not around or, or and whatever happens, he doesn't quite get that thing up to speed before Apocalypse takes over, and uh, the humans are left to be second-class citizens. And it's an interesting thing because they're, they're jumping back into that now in Marvel this year. So our timing couldn't have been better. We honestly did not know that we were going to be going whole hog on Age of Apocalypse tie-ins for 2012. <laughs> and we, we offered this idea to them and said, okay, sounds good. And then I was pleasantly surprised to see them making a comeback. So uh, that's cool, the timing, even if it wasn't necessarily all intended. Absolutely. So we'll go ahead and talk about all all of these books um, in the main section, but right now let's go ahead and take a break and uh, take a word from our sponsor. Hi, I'm Will Heinmarch, and I'm a gamer because I love it when uh, imaginations collide during play. It's not enough for me to uh, be reading stories or writing stories or watching movies, whatever it is. I love the moment of creation when it's all too hot to handle and it's still molten and it's moving between everybody's heads like lightning and you don't know what's going to happen next and anything is possible. And uh, also, and this is the real thing, is uh, I'm a big enough nerd that I don't think anybody else would have me. So, I'm Will Heinmarch, and I'm the Gamerati. Gamerati.com. It's good to be a gamer. Welcome back. So, um, let's go ahead and talk about the mechanics of how the Marvel Heroic RPG works. Um, I know that with... Um, I'm, I'm only familiar with the Cortex, not the Cortex Plus, so... Um, mm-hmm. You know, there's going to be some differences, but um, I remember with Serenity that the rules were really, really light and easy to pick up, and really sort of um, quick to the punch to be able to to learn and start playing. Yeah, um, that hasn't didn't... really changed too much. Which is okay. Good. Yeah, I'm not really a fan of, of, of very detailed, complex systems. I like things to be um, fairly easy to to pick up, and then you can adapt them later on and hack them as you like, make them more interesting if you want to. Um, the whole approach with Cortex Plus initially was because we both we had both the Leverage uh, TV show license and the Smallville TV show license. And those two games or those two properties were not something that I felt could really be supported properly by the what I now call classic Cortex, the one that appears in Supernatural. Mm-hmm. And so um, given that I had just taken these on and I was now the, the lead designer for the company, I thought, well, let's start going back and seeing what kind of changes we can make to the core system and see if there's anything that people had often said was um, you know, problematic or could have done with revision. And in the course of doing that, I even realized that you know, what I was about to do was rebuild this game from the ground up 
and do it twice, once with the uh, assistance of the folks who helped me with the Smallville game, and then again with Leverage. And mm-hmm. so I called this Cortex Plus, this idea that we have a common shared design language, so to speak, but not like a system you can just take it out and replace it with each other, you know, license. It wasn't, it wasn't one of those things where we just put a license on top of a, of a generic game. It's not D20 system, basically. <laughs> right, right. Yeah. Um, well, it's, it's close. If you, if you think about what they did uh, with D20 to change it towards things like Mutants and Masterminds or change okay. it towards Star Wars Saga Edition, there were some significant changes, but there was also this common core feeling. Like in all those games, you roll D20, for example. Mm-hmm. And so with Cortex Plus games, you still roll uh, multiple-sided dice from D4 through D12. Um, and those are what your traits are rated in. Anything you've got in your character sheet normally has a has a dice next to it. So in, in many ways, a lot like Savage Worlds is, um, like Earth Dawn games that have had in the past this sort of step die system. Um, we continue with that from the previous Cortex game. So if you played Serenity and Battlestar, you know mm-hmm. from that. Yeah, I remember we, we referred to it as the anti-D20 system. Yes, it Because it had everything D20. but the D20. <laughs> And that's still the case. Um, uh, I actually find it kind of funny because if you bought a whole lot of dice sets and you're only using the 20-sided die, you can use the remaining dice for our games. Yeah, and you'll finally be able to get use out of the, D, uh, the D12. I do love that die quite a lot. It's a, <laughs> it's a cool die. Now, uh, how does... I know. remember with the Serenity, the book felt like it was written by Mal Reynolds. And yeah, then, it was a, Faux Mal. That yeah. wasn't quite him. Yeah. And then Battlestar sort of felt like it was written by Starbuck. Is there a character that um, is sort of the voice of the Marvel role-playing game? It's more like a tone. I wanted to write it more in a style, the casual style that you used to see um, from reading the uh, editor's pages or the letters columns. Okay. Um, so yeah, it's kind of like some, some vague mishmash of everybody who's ever been an editor on a Marvel comic book. Um, and in some ways also it's all out of my voice too, just the casual way that I described it into the table. So mm-hmm. I, I tried to make sure you know, there's plenty of contractions, there's a lot of that sort of normal, um, not textbook speech. Okay. And uh, for this game and for previous games, uh, one of my favorite editors in the world, Amanda Valentine, is um, our managing editor. And so it's, it was her job in the basic game as I wrote that operations manual and breakout to go through and make sure that my tone was consistent and that it was easy to read and um, didn't sort of shift for some reason because I was tired one night while writing a chapter, you know. Yeah. So with good editing and a whole lot of proofreading, I think the end result is one that's very accessible. It doesn't sound like a a folksy kind of character or anything. It doesn't have too much of that. But it is um, a whole lot more down-to-earth and kind of, uh, you know, lighthearted in many ways too. Yeah, when I when I first saw that that it was going to come out and it was going to be my, my, my by Margaret Weiss and I knew that you previously did sort of voices for the for the writing of the books, I was worried that it was going to be in the voice of Wolverine or something. <laughs> <laughs> A funny thing, um, they used to use that like in the original Marvel superheroes game, uh, of which a lot of things in this game pay homage to. Um, in fact, there's there's a little bit of every three every one of the three previous games in this, just in terms of things I wanted to kind of like, you know, uh, be inspired by. So with the original game that came in the yellow box, I mean, that was written very much as if Spider-Man was talking to you. Okay. So it was kind of very sort of Peter Parker, Spider-Man, uh, every once in a while he'd throw a joke in there. Mm-hmm. I think that 
that may be a lot of what I did here, but not quite so, you know, you wouldn't be able to say this is different than Spider-Man. Yeah. Excellent. Now, um, you've got the, the core rules in each of these um, premium books that's coming out. Mm-hmm. Is there, besides the core rules, do you add on more rules to, like, you know, to match the the specific campaign, the event? Yeah, um, each of them has an opportunity for some way to expand a little bit of the rules. I mean, I don't want it to make it so different that you have to buy, you know, if you want rules for space, you must definitely buy the Annihilation book or anything. I mean, the idea for Annihilation is to try and uh, throw in a little bit of extra stuff to to really bring home the idea of the vast cosmic spaces and galaxies and and that kind of level of play. Mm -hmm. And there's no need for that in the other two events, so it, it wasn't a big thing to leave out of the operations manual. And similarly with Civil War, there'll be more like a, a series of uh, um, short sidebars and things to explain a little bit more about how to handle it when the, the, the game group, the player group, doesn't necessarily all uh, act on the same side. Mm-hmm. So this was something we explored a bit in Smallville. Smallville is a lot like the TV show where the main cast of characters are not necessarily all buddies. So in Smallville, you do you can have someone playing Lex Luthor, you can have someone playing Clark Kent, and they're not friends at all, but they can maybe be at least civil to each other. The whole point of Smallville is driving all the lead characters against each other in different kinds of ways, um, whether it's um, different ambitions or different goals or different... The ways to approach things, you have this conflict, and we didn't do that with leverage, and so we wouldn't, you know, use the same kind of rules for that. And in Marvel, we our expectation is that you're all on the same team. You wouldn't want too much of this in-party fighting. Yeah. It's not. It isn't quite how the comics work. You know, you might have Hawkeye picking on Captain America, but you never have it so that they're fighting each other. Mm-hmm. But in Civil War, that does happen. So um, there may be uh, one version of the Civil War that you play through where you know. Some people in the group are playing pro-registration forces and the others are playing anti-registration. But I think a lot of folks will probably go towards playing one or the other for their team just to avoid that friction. Yeah. And uh, so then Annihilation has the rules for... We'll have the rules for a lot more cosmic things. And then do you... I know it's still a long ways off, but do you have any, any plans for things for Age of Apocalypse? Well, there's this talk about maybe um, thinking of how to play larger factions um, involved in the, the particular intrigues going on in the Age of Apocalypse, but I'm thinking that we'd also want to talk about, um, at least in one of the supplements, the, the supplement for, I think it's Gambit and the Externals, there's this idea of multiple universes, and, and there's a comic book series that kind of sprang out of Age of Apocalypse several years ago called Exiles, which is very popular. Yeah. And that's a team of characters from different Marvel universes all sort of smushed together, jumping around from one reality to the other one. And I want to have some way to try and incorporate that. And if you want to continue on your Age of Apocalypse story, but maybe bring them back into the 616 universe, you could use this uh, these this book to do that. So that's kind of what I'm thinking. I mean, more about, you know, how do you do time travel? How do you do multiple universes? It's not something we cover very much in Operations Manual. Okay, and uh, you you were mentioning these these supplements that there, I remember hearing I think over on Genisodes mm-hmm. that there's going to be three for each each yeah. event, um, and those are small like twenty dollar books that basically ex- expand on everything. 
Yeah, and I think I mentioned on hers that um, the the way that, that that happens will change based on the the event itself. So, the Annihilation series, for example, the main storyline is the is the, the core event book you buy, and then if you want to continue on after that, you get supplements that continue that story. Mm-hmm. And they may also have things you can use in the main story, but that, that's not quite the same as as um, adding additional parallel stories. Whereas in Civil War, these three supplements um, flesh out secondary storylines that we didn't even cover in the main one. So the X-Men, for example, had their own supplement because they didn't have a whole to do with the main Civil War storyline apart from characters like Wolverine and Cable who were more heavily involved. But mm-hmm. you, know, you, you barely even saw Cyclops or Emma Frost or Shadowcat or anyone like that. They were all off doing something else. So for that case, the event supplement is like, well, here's some more characters that you want to play, and here's what they've been doing, and here's some cool scenes you can borrow from here and use them in your main story, um, however you like to do it. Okay. I'm somebody who really likes my books to look uniform on a mm-hmm. shelf. Are these are the books supposed to be, are they the size of like a trade paperback, or are they su- the size of a role-playing game? Like what's oh, the dimensions? Yeah. Yeah, they're actually the soft cover books were the same size as most of Marvel's trade paperback soft covers. Excellent. Covers. Okay. And the basic game is a soft cover, so it's going to be the first one that comes out like that. Okay. Um, the the event books though will be hard covers, but they will be the hard covers like the case bound versions you buy of um, um, Marvel collections. So they won't be. They still be a little bit um, more narrow than a, a, a traditional RPG book is. Mm-hmm. Excellent. So you'll be able to put those on the same shelf as like, you can put your Civil War books on the same shelf as your Civil War comics, so that they mm-hmm. you can all use them together. That's that's actually really really cool. I was wondering about that. Yeah. I also really like to use miniatures. So I under I know that the, the Cortex rules don't you know they they don't have tactical combat like Fourth Edition. Um, right. But how do you support um, you know the the movement of of pieces and do you have anything for being able to use tokens or miniatures in play? Well, it's um, not quite like that. I think that most of the combat is going to be a whole lot more dynamic and mm. you know, you'll have people flying around and jumping off buildings and one conflict can smash through several streets worth of stuff. Um, I do remember very fondly my first actual miniatures play was Marvel superheroes back in the eighties because that had those little cardboard standups Mm-hmm. And, you know, you had this big map, and they had New York City, and you could go from area to area. But it's not going to be a game where the um, things that you do are tied into uh, physical locations on some sort of surface. You could easily go that way. And I would probably say you could use things like the little clicks models and miniatures to to mark out that on a, on a um, you know, sort of a raceable mat or something else. And you could sketch out where the things happen. But it's mainly for visual purposes to, to keep track of where everybody is. Yeah, rather than, you know, this is, you're moving exactly five feet this way or that way. Right, right. Okay. And a lot of the tactics in the game come from uh, what you do with your effects when you create them. And your effects are dice um, that are a result of when you take an action, you roll, and if you succeed, you can use one of your dice that you rolled as an effect die. And that could be um, hurting someone with stress, or it could be inflicting a complication on them so that things get kind of uh, trickier for them. Or it could be giving an asset to one of your friends and therefore having them uh, helped out for what their action is going to be. So you want to have, um, you want to think of things in a, in a tactical sense, but you don't want to think of it in terms of actual numbers or, or 
you know, inches on a mat. Okay. Now you've got this doom pool that I've seen mentioned. The game master starts off with some dice, and then they get do they get more throughout the course of play? Yes. Yes. Um, one thing that's been common in the Cortex Plus game so far is that all the rolls are opposed. There's no static difficulty numbers. You don't uh, try and roll to get a 15 or 20 or anything anymore. So in uh, Swarville, I introduced uh, this idea called the trouble, trouble Pool. And Trouble was something that got bigger and was used for any ambient kind of opposition that wasn't an actual character. So if you had a character like you know someone trying to stop you from doing something, he'd, you'd roll for that character and you wouldn't worry about the Trouble Pool. But if it was a case of, I want to do something to this environment, I want to do something that doesn't have anyone necessarily opposing me, but it's still the chance of failure, the trouble pool gets rolled for that. So I borrowed that idea from Smallville. And another thing that's been common is that whenever you roll a one on your dice, you get together a dice pool of different traits. And you might say, I've got this, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm in a team, so I get my team affiliation die, I've got my this distinction of, uh, I, you know, I will take charge, and that's a die of D8. And you put that together, with, you get some power dice, and you get some specialty skill dice, and you roll all your dice together, and you pick two of them that come up to be your total, you add them together. And then you pick one third one to be uh, the effect die. But if any die comes up one, that's called an opportunity. That means that the Watcher can give you a plot point. And, you know, from Serenity and Battlestar previous you know, games, Plot points are this sort of game currency that helps you, um, you can spin them to, to do better. Mm-hmm. So you can get a plot point, but the, tr- the Doom Pool in Marvel gets bigger by the die that rolled the one. So if I'm rolling uh, 3d12 and 2d6, and one of my d12s comes out one, the Doom Pool suddenly gets d12. Now I get a plot point, that's great, I can use it for something else, but then things are getting a bit, you know, tense. And the Doom Pool represents how in the comics uh, there's also there's this collateral damage, there's people getting uh, worried about what's happening, there's sort of side effects of your actual battles, but there's also this sort of ambient tension that gets worse and worse and worse until things come to a head. Hmm. And the difference between the Doom Pool and the Trouble Pool from Smallville is that instead of having plot points, the Watcher can spend dice out of the Doom Pool to do different things in the game. So if he wants one of his uh, villains to to do better in a die, he can spend a Doom Pool die out of his Doom Pool and, and add that to his pool. You know, or he can spend dice to do something else. There's a whole list of things that you can do with them. So it's kind of a way for the, the Watcher to affect the game without being completely arbitrary. You don't just say, well, you know, it, it's a way to, to, to somewhat constrain the Watcher's powers, but also give them something to to have in front of him so everyone can look and see how scary things are getting. Yeah. Excellent. I really like that idea. I think that's really cool. Now you've got, you've also got milestones in the game, which um, remind me a lot of Lady Blackbird. They're exactly like these. <laughs> um, I'm not actually ashamed to admit that I do like to borrow ideas from games that I think are really cool, but I always try and put a bit of a twist on them. I don't want to just directly copy something. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I, I love the idea of um, <coughs> taking sort of the best mechanics of different games and throwing mm-hmm. them all together to create the perfect monster. So it, so how do the milestones work? Well, milestones are your way of introducing subplots and, and the role-playing uh, hooks to your characters. And so each data file that we make will have two of those. And each event has a number of them you can just choose from and try and follow. 
and you won't have more than two at any one time for your character that's that you're trying to, to, to work towards but you can have like one from your sheet and one from the event or two from the event or both the ones in your sheet you can choose at the beginning of the game what you're trying to do and there may be occasions when we provide additional character milestones for certain characters and they can choose from those so um, something like trying to save Aunt May from uh, this guy who was trying to marry her and you're not sure that you know he's a, he's the real deal he's some old guy maybe he's actually a monster you know something like that that isn't necessarily the main part of the story can be worked into a milestone and that way you're sort of saying to the watcher this is a thing I want to have happen and I'm going to be playing towards this kind of storyline so when you succeed on any if you hit any triggers there's three triggers on each of these milestones there's a 1 XP one a 3 XP and a 10 XP if you do that thing and make that decision that's hooked up to that trigger, you get the XP for it. And the 10 XP one, if you do that, which is usually some significant major thing, you close out the milestone. You've kind of made this important, big, significant character decision. Like, am I going to join these? This, am I going to join Shield forever and leave my team, or am I going to tell Shield to just you know go hang and 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 maybe burn some bridges and, and stay with my team? That could be a big 10 XP milestone. And then when you do that, you can pick a new one to, to go with. So they're kind of like quest chains from uh, video games, too. Yeah. Excellent. Yeah, because I see the um, Captain Americas, which you've got the preview up. Mm-hmm. Um, you get 10 For Avengers Assemble, you get 10 XP when you either convince one of the former Avengers to reform the team or to disband it. Yeah. Which can be really, really significant if your whole campaign is built around the Avengers. Sure. Yeah. And and you, you'd convince them to, to disband the whole team. Right. It's not a terribly difficult one for some people to do, but it also needs to happen in the course of the game. And um, there are some things that you need to try and play out that lead up to it. You can't just decide, okay, opening scene, it's Captain America and Iron Man are standing there and Cap says, hey, let's join the Avengers up together. You know, you could do that and get 10 XP and something that's over quick, you know, done. But that mm. would, wouldn't feel right. And, of course, Iron Man's player can say, no... Nah, <laughs> I don't feel like doing that. You also re- released a preview of part of Breakout, which is mm-hmm. the the dinosaur section with the Savage Land and everything. I remember being really being into the Savage Land back when I was a when I was a kid watching the old X Men cartoon. Right. right. And uh you got T Rexes and Velociraptors. Yeah, my favorite thing. I had a, so much fun making these um for the for the basic game, all the hero data files and all the stats for the bad guys and monsters and things are all, are all, were all written by me with um, uh, some great rules editing by Matthew Gandy, who was who works with Amanda to help us with rules editing. And each of those things was so much fun to make because um, in the, in the game itself, making new new characters is not terribly difficult. If you have a look at the ones that are in there, there's not much to them. They just require a bit of thought about how you can have these different special effects and powers uh, interact with one another. So a good example would be the uh, T-Rex has a huge head and little arms, and he can't use the huge head again until he's tried using his little arms, which are really weak and useless. <laughs> so it's a, um, it's a way to try and you know, um, balance out or at least provide some variety for a character when you say, you know, you can use this cool thing, but not until you've unlocked it again with this other thing you have to do. Excellent. So you've got a, a really big selection of heroes. You said how many in there? Twenty-three. Twenty-three, and then mm-hmm. 
just as many supervillains or a I little bit less? More. I think more. Oh, I excellent. Have, I would have to go count, but there's a lot, and they're all the character. They're all villains who were in the raft, which is the super villain prison attached to Rikers Island in the Marvel New York City, and they um, they're all freed once the raft gets broken into and the prison break happens. Excellent, and mo- mostly iconic villains <laughs> and stuff like that. Actually, no. There's some there's some uh, popular characters like Graviton and and um, Mr. Hyde and and some of those guys, but then a lot of them are real B-listers. You know, yeah, Brothers Grimm and Armadillo. Oh, very cool. Those guys, and the reason there's a lot of that sort of stuff is I, I don't necessarily think we we have to always give you like you know here's Magneto and Doctor Doom and Submariner and everybody. You know, it, it, those guys will appear in different events. I wanted to provide a whole range of different kinds of villains of varying power levels that you could have fun with. And you could probably take the basic game and just run um, games out of that for, for months and months and months without anything else if you wanted to. In fact, some of our playtesters from the very beginning had materials that, that ended up being in, in the uh, basic game. And without any additional events, they just continued their story you know the heroes have gone into New York City to try and locate some of these guys and round them up and take them on and it's been fun so yeah there's a lot of hooks in there for additional play excellent that's always really 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 good when you have some you know you have an adventure but it isn't so tied down that you can't really um expand beyond it yeah once you've got the end there so it's it's almost like we're trying to show off what the events are capable of with a sort of a smaller cut-down version. That's what the mini-event for Breakout is. The actual events are going to be much bigger and have a whole lot more going on. But very much like this, you will be able to do it kind of sandboxy if you want to. Um, there's there The events are broken out into major acts where you know, there will be some kind of major scene happening at the beginning of each of those. But where you go with them and what milestones your characters are following will change how things work out. Excellent. I also really like the idea that you can just sort of take your characters and... I mean, there's a there's a long chain starting in the early 2000s of um, basically a big, huge, overarching plot. Mm-hmm. Um, starting with the Avengers disassembled and then going all the way through to the heroic age that they've got going now. Yeah. Um, there's a lot of major events in there, so I think it'd be really, really interesting to see somebody, you know, start with the Avengers disassembled and, you know, work their way through House of M and um, the the Civil War and uh, Secret Invasion and Siege and everything like that. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that'd be a lot of fun to uh, to experience. Well, it's weird because the they're only just now wrapping up. In fact, they're about to go into Avengers versus X Men, mm-hmm. and this is like the tail end of the entire Scarlet Witch story because she's responsible for disassembled, and then she is responsible for House of M, and then they had the whole thing with that. And uh, recently, they were they did Young Avengers Children's Crusade, which is um, which involves her. And from what I can tell, with the Avengers versus X Men. Scarlet Witch has a big role to play in that too, so you know that is what we're saying. There's a, there's a lot of these threads of story you could you could easily track through, and even if you don't use the same characters that appeared in the main storylines for those, if you had these other guys who you know were affected by it the same way, and you could make your own choices and decisions. Well, um, 
Normally at this point in the show, we would start with a campaign discussion where in the past I've helped out the other guest hosts in in their campaigns, problems that they've been dealing with. But what I'd like <laughs> to talk about is uh, how you can do a really good Marvel campaign and what you've seen people playing that's, that's different than the Civil War and um, Annihilation and things like that. Have you, have you seen a lot of different varied campaigns um, with, among the playtesters? There have been, there've been a couple of real good standout examples. Um, one wasn't... Uh, it sort of started out well. I think it, if, if uh, he's one of our concept designers, Wilhelm Match, he decided to, to run a game for two friends and just have them be Black Widow and Daredevil. And okay. he kind of wanted to do a Marvel Knights kind of thing, just with yeah. the playtest materials and see what happened. And although it didn't go anywhere, it was interesting for me because it was like this idea of we'll take two characters, we know that they have a relationship with each other, we know they've got shared history, and their kind of stories tend to be more street level or more, um, you know, here comes the hand, the ninjas from you know, Japan, and then there's um, various parts of New York City which are whole lot more gritty and dark than you would normally get. Mm-hmm. And that that went out really well. And and there was nothing much you had to change with the rules to get that feeling. It all comes down to, you know, player choices and the sorts of storylines he throws at them. So I think uh just from the playtesting we've got that kind of thing. We've got uh, like I said earlier, one character one player um uh playtester decided to just go nuts with all the villains that he'd seen. And he just kept having their team of Avengers felt that they had to track down every last one of the escapees. Huh. And it was fun because sometimes they uh, they would go off in pairs or go off as a whole group. And you'd get characters like Iron Fist and Ms. Marvel working together on a, on a, on a mission to try and track down someone like um, Mr. Hyde. And you can really see those sorts of fights that you don't normally even get to, the chance to see in the comics. So that kind of stuff is fun. I think that the real beauty of making these campaigns yourself outside of doing it from the event is you'll get that sense of you know, what would happen if, you know, what if it's just like Marvel's what if comics, mm-hmm. you know, what if the new Avengers were actually composed of the fantastic four minus, you know, human torch, but instead it also has Spider-Man, Wolverine and, uh, um, you know, let's say storm from the X-Men and, that whole dynamic is so different from what you'd otherwise have that you get different kinds of things at the table. You get different kinds of stories that come out of it. You know, how does Storm get along with Invisible Woman, for example, if they're on the same team? How does that work out? Mm-hmm. And I think that's where you, you get into it. Then if you're, if you're the watcher, then you're, you're telling stories or coming up with ideas and scenes that, that really build on what fun things come out of that. And if you're not, you could do a, a, a villain of the week if you want to. Just everyone shows up at your house, so stop the game. It's this guy's broken out of whatever, or you found evidence leading to Chicago where you know Armadillo and Tiger Shark are there chained together by a big chain, <clears throat> which actually happened in New Orleans, I think. If you have that kind of thing where you just do a villain of the week, but you continue some kind of threads of story throughout it, you can go on for quite a long time. Excellent. Are you running a, a campaign yourself right now? No, I, well, not, I'm not a Marvel campaign, believe it or not. I'm actually running um, Pendragon, which is a different game altogether. But I did do some playtesting local, and I'll be doing a huge amount of running this game all year. So I'm kind of sucking myself up for that experience. <laughs> so you'll be at all the like, different cons playing it and running it? Yep. And... 
Mm -hmm. Yep, we've got a few people who are helping us out on the playtesting and helping us out in design who are going to be running games too at cons. And for February, a lot of these retail stores who are we've set up as preferred retailers, which means if you buy uh, Microwise Productions book from them, we send you the PDF for free, which is a cool setup. Um, these stores are going to be running in-store launch parties for Marvel for the basic game. So you should be able to find a local store and say, you know, are you running a launch party for this? And if not, they can get in touch with us and we can send the materials out to you. And that's something I'm looking forward to seeing how that works out because this is like rolling out this game. We've never done anything like this before. Rolling it out across the country and seeing what people do in their own stores with their own um, players. Excellent. Uh, last, what is your who's your favorite uh, superhero as far as their their rules and everything, and why do you like them within the game? Oh, in the game. Um, early on, when we were doing playtesting, Iron Man was a favorite of mine because he was very much a he was one of the characters that was resource management guy. Um, thing he could tap out his powers and get plot points, but it meant shutting down various parts of his armor. Hmm. You know, so he was one of those guys that he, he didn't have a lot of ways of earning plot points other than shutting things down, which if you read anything uh, in Iron Man, he tends to, it happens all the time. No matter how great his armor is at the time, he keeps making better versions, but yeah. they always run out of juice or <clears throat> get hit by EMPs or something else. So he's fun to play with. But um, there are characters like Luke Cage and Cyclops who have like one power set with practically one power in them. And they don't have a whole lot of anything going on power-wise apart from that one thing. But we have so many cool special effects and tricks that they can do that they, they are, they're the equal of their fellow um, heroes. And Cyclops is one of those characters who, if you look at him, you think, well, I don't want to play him. All he does is blast things with his you know, uh, eye optic blast. Yeah. But um, we've actually had people come back and say that, that Cyclops was one of the favorite character at the table just because he was so cool in other ways he was very much a leader he had uh, cool ways of getting plot points to help him out and you know if he needed to he could really uh, unleash his optic blast in a major way and just take out huge amounts of real estate so that kind of character is a lot of fun to play also awesome excellent well now we're going to go ahead and move on to we did end up finally getting a voicemail um Unfortunately, it took me quite a while to edit the last episode <laughs> because of Christmas and college and things like that. Um, yeah. I've gotten a lot quicker at editing now, so this this episode should go up within the week. Um, but we got a voicemail about um, a month and a half ago, um, so it didn't end up in our last episode that I just released today, uh, but it's going to end up here now, so uh, let's take a listen. Cool. Greetings. This is Andrew calling in from Washington to uh, specifically address some topics being discussed on Dice Monkey. Uh, I attempted to call in last uh, couple weeks ago, but I guess things got fouled up or I pressed the wrong button or got disconnected or some such. But uh, with regards to prophecies and the like, I'm uh, running a campaign right now, and I really hope none of my players are listening, uh, where there's a prophecy that exists in the game, and we're getting to the point where in a few sessions it's going to be revealed that this prophecy is, in fact, uh, well, it's a little bit different than what they initially thought. The problem is I don't think the players really remember the prophecy or really care about the prophecy. And I realize this far along it might be kind of tough to salvage it, but I still wanted to get some advice as far as how do I remind them of the prophecy without making it completely obvious that I am planning to pull a fast one. 
Um, and then the other thing is, uh, it's Genasi, I'm pretty sure. Genasi. Or, I mean, it sounds like you guys are saying, like, genocide every time you were talking about uh, Genasi and the, uh, that Monster Choice um, the Monster Choice uh, segment that you guys did for the, the Valley of the Storms and all that jazz. Um, and the reason I say it like that, like a jerk is what I mean, uh, is that I've heard a lot of the designers say it that way, like on interviews and whatnot. And the other thing is that uh, Genesee, I mean, it sounds <laughs> Genesee, excuse me, Genesee, I think is how you're pronouncing it. Uh, to some folks, at least uh, in the Washington area, that's that's literally a pronunciation of D away from genocide. And at first it was very jarring, and I had no idea what you guys were talking about. Um, but, uh, yeah, so it's Genasi, and it's Eladrin, and it's Ominator, and uh, I can't think of any other controversial pronunciations. But I, I do have a question. I know I'm saying it wrong. Menzabrinzin is the way I've been pronouncing it, but I realize the drow, uh, drow version of Elvin under dark speak or whatever you want to call it, Obviously, it's a bit different. So, how do you pronounce that? Uh, the fine drow capital of the Underdark, Menzabrins, then would be uh, excellent information. And uh, yeah, so prophecy question slash pronunciation question. Thanks for the help, gentlemen, and I look forward to hearing the next episode. Good day. Thanks for the call, Andrew. Um, yeah, I've I had actually never heard the pronunciation of. Uh, Genasi before um, I had read the Forgotten Realms guide and I never actually heard it out loud. So, have you? Well, how did you pronounce it, Cam? Genasi. Yeah. Is that Genasi. a yeah? I'm I'm, yeah. I'm obviously uh, weird because I got the accent and everything, but no, I don't, I think most of the time when we read through these weird game names, we form a quick impression in our head about what it must be, and then you go and meet someone else and you think, what the heck are you talking about? And yeah, you know. So I don't even think that the people in the wizards say always say these things. <laughs> Absolutely. You know, I think they should have meetings whenever they write these things and say, okay, and here's what we're saying. I'm saying Genasi. So you want to have someone saying Genasi or? Yeah. How about, uh, how about the Drow City? How do, how do you pronounce that? I don't think I've said it that often, but I would say in my head I say Menza Brandan. Yeah, that's how, that's how I pronounce it too. I'm not sure what the official... Uh, pronunciation is, but um, actually on the episode that we just released, we talked about the new uh, Menza Branzen City of Intrigue that was coming out, so um, I think I think it's Menza Branzen, um, but um, if anybody else wants to call in and correct us on that, then that'd be that'd be good too. So um, have you dealt with prophecy much in your games at all, in previous uh, fantasy games? Yeah, um, as I mentioned earlier, I did a lot of Dragonlance gaming um, and when I was working on Dragonlance, I ran a campaign for about two or three years. And at one point, and I originally started me playtesting the actual adventures I was writing. And then I decided to just throw that out and keep doing it however I like because I'm not one for railroading anyway. So what happened was I wanted to introduce a prophecy of a kind of a demigod character who had managed to inspire someone by, by Lovecraft. Um, this this being, you couldn't remember anything about it if you weren't actively involved with it. So hmm. it would be like the, it would it, it, knowledge of it erased from people's minds, and you could write down stuff, but you'd read it and then look away and it wasn't there anymore. This is years before Doctor Who did this with the silence. I was very impressed yeah. with. But there's this notion of of um, very temporary knowledge, 
And it was fun because there were prophecies about it, um, and they had to find a kind of um, uh, language that was able to capture this without it going away, and then learn the language and then have it in their minds so they could remember what on earth they were fighting. And I think mm-hmm. sometimes with, with prophecy games, you have to have something that accounts for people um, not doing what you think the prophecy should do. That's the worst part of it. But you also have to find some way of giving this exposition without it being like, I'm going to read out five pages worth of stuff to you. You know, so at one point I think I had it that they had, they were in a library somewhere and I said, okay, well, you've spent two hours here reading about it, but you don't remember anything. And they're like, what? You know, and that way I could have occasional flashbacks for them if they were encountering a minion of this creature, this, this being, they could flashback to remember when they uh, knew some lore about it, which would help them fight it, but I didn't have to <laughs> give it to them in advance. Yeah. So. That's actually a really good idea. So how would you advise he um, sort of figure out how to re-reveal the prophecy to his players without tipping them off that he's going to be using it in his upcoming sessions? It's tough. It is tough. I, I think that, that you know whatever he's already told them, you kind of have to make sure that's that stays. You know, you don't want to go back and retcon it too much. There are some players who are okay with the GM during that. You might just say, okay, look, guys, I... I screwed up, and uh, this thing isn't going to work out the way, so can we just play that we don't know that? And that's okay for some people, but others, just like that's like the worst thing you can do to them. Mm-hmm. You, know? you promised me it was this, and I had a prophecy with my holy avenger I was going to slay this demon, and it doesn't happen. And uh, that's a problem. So uh, maybe keep the things he already has, but the other side of it that you could bring in is this whole idea of flashbacks, too. You could have it so that the prophecy is revealed through... Um, other characters telling them that something's happened to them. You may even have it that the prophecy is going on parallel to whatever is happening at the time. And they don't necessarily have to be right on the, on the path. Yeah. Does that make sense? You know, so they might meet someone and find that the person has been, you know, killed and there's some brimstone and fire and smoke around the place. And they said, well, what happened here? And then someone says, well, it was on page 19 of the prophecy. Did you get that part? Oh, I guess not. Mm -hmm. So, I would probably make the prophecy bigger and not try and uh, have the players be involved in every single element of it. So then there's room for um, stuff, excuse me, stuff to happen when it wasn't the players succeeding or not. You can kind of carry the story on if there's some failure. So, Absolutely. And I think that if you want to sort of remind players of, of a prophecy that you previously gave, you can do that, but to keep it from like your players from fully thinking that you're about to drop this huge piece of um, like the fulfillment of the prophecy on them. Right. If you sort of like a few sessions ahead of time mm-hmm. begin um, begin sort of reiterating the prophecy through, like you said, through NPCs and things like that, yeah. um, then that can sort of help um, so that then you only have a, like two sessions since they last heard the prophecy Right. Rather right. than, you know, a year since they've last heard it. And bringing it in in a small way also, there's a lot of this, uh, you can throw some red herrings in too, just as fun, but the, the last thing you want to have happen is that the players write down every last thing that goes on because they're not sure whether it's important or not. <laughs> you know, yeah. I have actually had that. My, my wife tells me off for, for trying to introduce mysteries because she doesn't know whether something that's going on is actually part of the mystery or not and she just gets fed up 
Yeah. And, um, you know, you also sometimes have that problem when you're making prophecy. You think this is totally obvious to all the players. I'm sure it'll be obvious. And then none of them get it. Mm-hmm. And that's because it may be obvious to you, but not obvious to everyone else. Absolutely. So, uh, I think there's that finesse you're talking about. How ham-handed do you want to really be about it? Um, how much do you want to throw at them at once? But, you know, that's one way of doing it, I think. Yeah. Excellent. Well, the Marvel role-playing game comes out um, currently scheduled for February 28th. Mm-hmm. Before the end of the month. Excellent. And then following that, there will be Civil War in the um, first first or second quarter? Second right? quarter, yep. Second quarter. Um, Annihilation in third quarter and Age of Apocalypse in the fourth quarter. So uh, look, look forward to those. And uh, thank you very much for being on the show, Cam. Hey, thank you for inviting me. It was great. Absolutely. So um, if you want to call in, you can always call in at one eight seven seven biz tome That's one eight seven seven biz tome And you can leave a voicemail for us, uh, me and whoever is going to be the guest host. And uh, we will catch you next time.